When you hear about sexual violence in Australia, do you worry about the future for your child? Sadly, uh, sexual violence is fairly ubiquitous in Australia. Today on Feed Play Love, we're talking about how to create a better sexual future for our kids. Feed Play Love with Siobhan Hunt. If you have small kids, chances are you think any talk about sex is not going to happen for a long time. You may have it up there with teaching your child how to drive, a slightly scary thing that will happen sometime in the future. My next guest says it's something we've got to start talking about now. Katrina Marson is a sexual offences prosecutor and author of Legitimate Sexpectations, The Power of Sex Ed. Having seen the results of sexual violence, she decided to investigate ways of preventing it from happening in the first place. Hi, Katrina. How are you? Hi, I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you won a Churchill Fellowship to investigate sex ed and how people were doing it around the world. Mm. Was sex ed really obvious to you as the pathway f- to find the answers? Uh, To some extent, yes, but that was because I'd had an introduction to the power of educative measures as a means of protecting against sexual violence from an earlier stage in in my life and career, which was at university. I did my honours thesis comparing the ability of the criminal justice system to prevent sexual violence with primary prevention measures like education. So that was a real academic piece that I'd done. Um, which came down fairly and squarely in favour of education over the reactive system of of the criminal law. Um, but nonetheless, I submitted my honours thesis and then went into the criminal law where I've been for the last 10 years. So to me, it was always um, in my mind as as one of the proven protective factors against sexual violence. Um, it's not a silver bullet, but uh, as I say in the book, We'll never get there without it. And my time in the criminal law, particularly working in sexual offences, which is my um, primary area that I work in, uh, has only served to reinforce that research that I'd done at university that, that we need to do more to prevent sexual violence from happening in the first place and to improve the culture and attitudes and things that drive sexual violence and negative sexual experiences to try and stem that tide. So when I learned of what a Churchill Fellowship was, I thought that I ought to apply to see if I could dip back into this research interest I had about sex education as a means of safeguarding sexual well-being for young people when they're young and as they get older into their adult lives. So I probably should say for people who don't know what a Churchill Fellowship is, what is it? A Churchill Fellowship is a research grant that um, is given to Australians to go overseas and research a topic of their choice. It could be anything. There are no real prescriptions about what you can research. You just need to convince the trust that there is something that they do really well overseas that we could learn from to improve the lives of Australians. And if you're successful and they, they give you the grant, they assist you to travel to countries that you nominate and speak to people and learn from key stakeholders and people in the relevant field that you're interested in to learn from them about 
what we could do better in Australia. So for me, it was sex ed, but other people have done things like public toilet design. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the preservation of mid-century modern architecture. Any, any topic you could think of, if you can convince them that there's something we could benefit from here, from going overseas, then they might give you a grant to go and do that. It's a wonderful program. So how did you choose the countries that were doing well? I mean, I guess we're starting from a place where Australia isn't doing well and you're seeing the results of not doing well in the court system. Mm. So if we start from that basis, how do we rank globally in Mm. terms of the prevalence of sexual violence in Australia? That's a tricky question to answer because, well, as I said, sexual violence is ubiquitous in Australia. There are um, survivors of sexual violence in every corner of our society, sadly. And as I say in the book, it also means that there are perpetrators everywhere as well. And in terms of where we rank globally in terms of sexual violence, I'm not sure I have the data to answer that question. But in terms of the story of sex education, the best way to describe how we do it in Australia is that it's inconsistent. So there will be some young Australians who get really good comprehensive relationships and sexuality education. There are great educators out there, schools doing really good work, individual teachers who are amazing. But the problem is we can't guarantee every young Australian that they will get access to the information and education that they need to safeguard their own and each other's sexual well-being. So when I went overseas, I went to countries where they treat it more as a matter of public well-being a public health policy issue, and they aim to guarantee it for all of their young people. And that's what we need to see in Australia. Do you have any sense of where that inconsistency in Australia comes from? Because this whole conversation we're having, in the back of my mind, I feel like one of the biggest barrier is our attitude to sex Mm. in Australia Mm. and maybe the way we were raised with sex ed when we were kids. I can't remember what I was taught at school. Mm. And all I remember from my parents, bless their souls, they did the best they knew how, was they put the Where Did I Come From book on my bed. I was mortified. I didn't even look inside it. I just put it back on their bed. They never knew Mm. what I had read. So the inconsistency that we see in our education system, is it structural, bureaucratic, or does it come from a social place? Where we didn't, where we have this kind of idea that it's all taboo. Both, right, both is the answer to that. So, um, the bureaucratic side of things is that, in part, education is the jurisdiction of the states and territories. Um, so, of course, there's going to be some inconsistencies across them, and we can put it in the curriculum. As we've seen some improvements in the national curriculum with the greater inclusion of consent in the last twelve months or so, but the curriculum is one thing, and it's more of a roadmap than sort of a clear mandate and it doesn't answer the need for teachers to be trained and feel confident in delivering the subject matter. It doesn't address the fact that teachers have a lot of things to get through in the school curriculum, a lot of things on their plate. And it doesn't necessarily meet the need of parents to be engaged in the conversation as well and to be assisted with information and resources to carry on the conversation at home after um, kids come come back from school. So there is a bureaucratic aspect to it. But certainly the social aspect of the taboo around sex and sexuality and talking about it, even among adults, let alone with young people, is a really huge factor. But what gives me hope, I suppose, is that it's not like the countries I went to overseas didn't also face 
those barriers. It's just that they worked out how to meet those concerns, how to address them, how to work through them in recognition of the fact that young people really need this information and education if they are to be better protected and to go on to lead fulfilling lives free from sexual violence, free from negative sexual experiences and full of rewarding, fulfilling experiences and and autonomy uh, when they get to the stage of their life where they're ready to engage in that side of their lives. When I started this, I said that many parents listening would be like, Mm. oh, this is something I need to worry about when they're a teenager, Mm. they might have toddlers or children in primary school. Mm. What would you say to them about talking about sex and sex education with that particular age group? I completely understand why people feel hesitation about the idea of speaking to young children about sex, sexuality, body parts, relationships. It feels counterintuitive that talking to young people about those things will actually protect them, but that is what the evidence shows. So a lot of people are concerned that the more we talk to young people about sex, the more likely they are to run off and engage in sexual behaviour before they're ready. The evidence is very clear that the opposite is actually true. The earlier you start to talk to them in an age and stage-appropriate way, I, I need to be clear, the earlier you start to talk to them about those things, the later they are likely to have their first sexual experience and the less likely they are to have negative sexual experiences. Because you're building in them confidence, knowledge, awareness, autonomy, the things that they need so that when they get to that stage of their life, they are equipped to navigate it in a way that means they can articulate what they're comfortable with, they can find out what the other person's comfortable with. Those sorts of things, we can't just give them those skills later in adolescence. They need to start from building blocks at a young age. So I often say we don't start by teaching young people algebra. We start with numbers. We start with simple addition. And then we get when they get, you know, to, I don't know how, how old you are when you start learning algebra, but when you get to the to the older stage, that's when we start to get into the more nuanced, tricky side of things. It's the same with sex ed. So we will start with things like bodily autonomy, how to identify how we feel about certain things. So let's take an example from the Netherlands. They do these classes with very young children where they will touch different fabrics against their skin. So maybe a feather, a sponge, some steel wool, and they will articulate how it makes them feel. So it's about accessing that part of their emotions, being able to put words around how certain physical sensations make them feel, learning to articulate those things. And they also put a lot of emphasis on respecting what other people are comfortable with. So a lot of emphasis on not necessarily giving your uncle a hug or a kiss if you don't want to. So things like that are what we're talking about when we talk about relationships and sexuality education for young kids, building some of those, um, that knowledge and those, that language and skills in things like bodily autonomy and confidence at a young age that we then build on at the appropriate stage to take it into the topic of sex and sexuality. Another thing that's really important when we're talking about very young children is where possible using accurate language for genitals. I'm not calling them rude parts, for example, which I know that, as I said earlier, I can completely understand why we might be inclined to do that. We've all grown up with that sense of taboo, that sort of shyness around 
these words and sex and sexuality. And that's that's the culture and the society that we've been brought up in. But it's really important that we try and mitigate that because we know the connection between sort of a lack of knowledge, a lack of awareness and a shame around talking about these things. There is a connection between that and negative sexual experiences when we're older um, or potentially even abuse when when people are uh, young. So they're just some of the ways that we can think about the idea of relationships and sexuality education for really young kids. That was a very long-winded. Oh, no, it's, no, it's very interesting. I mean, one of the things that I'm hearing in what you're talking about is, and I know you write about this in your book, is that it, it's it's not just on the education system mm. to be teaching our kids. It needs to be a marriage between the education system and parents. Mm. And I definitely want to talk about parents in a minute. Mm. But just going back to the research that you did and what you found overseas, was it clear how we can get a consistent sex education program in our schools across Australia? I mean, it's something, you know, for example, First Nations people will talk about the way our history is taught differently mm. over different states and territories. It seems like it's it's a common problem when it comes to education. Was there a solution to how inconsistent it is just simply because of the way we handle education in Australia? I like to use Germany as an example to answer that question because, like us, they have states or provinces where education is the jurisdiction of the states. It's not a federal issue. Yet it's their federal government that has created a branch in their public health department that's dedicated to sexual violence prevention and sexuality education. So in that branch, they house some experts in this subject matter who not only engage in domestic and international cutting-edge research around it, they also design sex ed programs, they help develop resources and curriculum that they then assist the state-based education departments to roll out. And rolling out means providing them with those resources, but also teacher training, engagement with parents, information sessions. So that's a great example of a federalist system that's able to bring some consistency and some guarantee into their relationships and sexuality education for their young people. And as I say, as I said earlier, it comes back to, I think at heart, recognizing this as a matter of public health, as a public policy. This isn't an individual responsibility. This is a matter of public health. And if we look at the rates of sexual violence, of negative sexual experiences, then we have to recognize it as a public health crisis that we need to do something about. And leaving it up to individuals alone is letting young people down. We need to offer them some kind of guarantee and recognize that they actually have a right to information and education that affects their lives in a very material way, in a very significant way. I say in the book that we we teach them about planets far away and people who died long ago, and yet we seem reluctant, or in some areas we seem reluctant to teach them about the things that will affect their daily lives, both now and as they get older. So I think recognising that this is a right that young people have and that it's an area of expertise is a really great place to start in pursuing that consistency and that guarantee. When we talk about the schooling system, 
I am going to get to parents, but I just there's so much to ask you about education. Um, parents across Australia do have a choice where they send their kids to yeah. school. So they could send them to the local public school. Mm-hmm. They can choose an independent school that might be religious-based or not, mm-hmm. and then they can send them to private school. And then, of course, within the private school system, there are also religious-based cool. schools. I remember speaking to a friend about where I was going to send my daughter to high school Mm. and we're not Catholic, but there's a local Catholic school. And this friend said to me, I'm sure it's a great school. She won't get any sex education. Mm. And that's definitely a concern for me. And I'm wondering, given how, I don't even know where it's at at the moment, but it's complicated the way the laws we have around religious discrimination and Mm. what they're able to do in schools. Is that a barrier for good sex ed when we have such different types of schools within Australia? Mm. I think the best way to answer that is to look at a couple examples from overseas. So one is, let's take the UK. Shortly before I got there on my Churchill Fellowship, they'd introduced a legislative mandate that all young Britons should have access to a certain level of relationships and sexuality education. Now, there were some caveats in terms of how that would work in religious schools, But there was fundamentally a mandate. Now, it's arguable how well that mandate's been able to be implemented, which is why the story of sex ed implementation is not a simple one. It's not a matter of just sticking it in the curriculum or sticking it in the legislation and saying, great, there's the mandate, off you go. It takes a lot of work after that. But fundamentally, having that kind of mandate that comes from the top down is a useful hook that that we can hang our hat on and that schools can hang their hat on in terms of being able to then deliver sex ed and and having that imprimatur to do so. In terms of the religious side of things, let's have a look at Ireland, a very Catholic country. They have most of their schools are Catholic. In recent history, Ireland has overhauled some of their traditional ways of doing things, both in sort of the marriage side of things. They, they had a referendum on gay marriage, as I understand it. Reproductive rights was in the spotlight. And sex education got a bit of an overhaul again, shortly before I got there on my Churchill Fellowship, luckily for me. I was going to say, fortunate. (laughs) Yes. Um, So they, um, notwithstanding that, most of their schools, their schooling system is Catholic and the Catholic Church had dominated or governed, I should say, the way that sex education was delivered in that country. There was a bit of a cultural um, reckoning with that in, in Ireland and there was an overhaul of their sex education system. And as I understand it from those I spoke to, even those on the conservative side of politics recognise that this is something that needed to occur because of its power to protect young people and to safeguard them. So I always say if Ireland can do it, where I think it's something in the the realm of 90% of their schools are Catholic, we can do it in Australia too. Catholic education in Australia can do it. Now, I have to say anecdotally there are a number of faith-based schools and education institutions in this country who are doing some really great work to try and meet the needs of their students and their young people when it comes to relationships and sexuality education, whilst balancing that with the, the pillars of their faith and their faith system. There is a way to do it. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. I think we just need to be brave enough um, and committed enough to navigating the way through so that we can meet the needs of young people, as I say, whilst also whilst also adhering to the relevant pillars of faith. And I say that as someone who was raised Catholic and started my schooling life in a Catholic school. 
So it certainly can be done. And I always like to use Ireland as an example, just because they are so, so much of their schooling system is Catholic. Speaking of bravery, many or most parents who are parenting today, as I mentioned earlier, would have had fairly patchy sex Mm. education growing up and potentially are using things like rude bits or Mm. don't understand that you can use the word penis and vagina and and it's just totally normal for kids. So is it really parents who need to be educated before we can even think about supporting our kids? And, And given the resources you mentioned, so that we can find a language to have these conversations? I don't think it necessarily needs to be before but certainly in parallel. So the way it was described to me in the Netherlands was a triangle of education, education of teachers, education of parents, and then education of children. They're the three points on the triangle. Um, I would possibly add a fourth and make it a square if we're talking about the rest of the community as well. And that's really what I argue in the book, is that it's tempting for us to sort of silo responsibility and say, this is for parents to take care of. This is for the school to worry about. It's actually all of us. We all need to turn our gaze inwards and think about the role that we play as members of the community, as professionals in our work life, as parents, as aunts, uncles, sisters, brothers, friends, family friends, coaches, tutors, whatever role we play in terms of interacting with each other. We all are contributing to the ecosystem that we currently have that sadly, allows sexual violence to flourish. So we all need to look at our own role, what we can do. And so it's about sort of addressing all of those different points of the community. But in answer to your question, yes, we certainly need to engage with parents and caregivers as a critical priority of relationships and sexuality education. And this was done really well overseas in every country that I went to. They've prioritised this whether it was through information sessions, the provision of resources, documents. So in the Netherlands, for example, they produce these pamphlets where they list the questions you might get from young people at particular age groups. They might start asking about their genitals and other people's genitals and why they're different. Here's how you might be able to answer those questions. Those sorts of resources are really practical. They're really helpful. And I think that's what a lot of parents are crying out for. It's certainly something I hear time and again is how can we have these conversations with our young people? What are things that should be red flags and alarm bells? And what are things that are normal and expected and just help me out with how I might answer some of these questions? Um, In Canberra, there was a parent group, a parent organised event that I went to that I absolutely loved. They called it Awkward Conversations. And they got parents of schools in a local area to come together to a local Polish club where they'd hide out the hall and they'd got all these different experts from different organisations, so the Sexual Health and Family Planning, ACT, for example, experts in things like cyberbullying, those sorts of things, and they all had these different stations and parents could get a drink and go around to these different stations and talk to these experts about how might I address these issues with my kids. So it was a real learning session for parents, but that was self-initiated, and I think if we could see more of those sorts of things, that would be wonderful that that just goes to answer your question, I suppose, about the importance of engaging parents and assisting them, Um, particularly because, as you say, so so many of us have grown up without sex ed ourselves. So where do we start? Yeah, exactly. And it can feel 
you also don't want it to feel awkward. You want it to be a natural discussion with your kid. Someone once said to me, when it comes to those questions from your kids and people worry about being age appropriate, and someone said, be led by their curiosity. Mm -hmm. So answer their questions, but actually hear what their question is. Because it's often, if it's a young child, what they're asking you isn't sexual in nature the way we would think of it. Yes. It's pure curiosity. That's right. That's what someone overseas said to me. When we think of sex and talking to kids about it, we're thinking of it with our adult brains on. They're not thinking of it like that. Exactly as you say, it's just pure curiosity. And let me give you an example of um, the way that kids approach it. I was in these classes in England and I'd say the kids were about eight, nine years old. And the educators asked them, maybe nine or ten, and the educators asked them, how old do you think people are when they start having sex? They asked this of every class at that age group. No kid said anything under about 18. 16 if they clearly knew what the age of consent was. When they said 16, you could tell it's because they'd heard that that was the legal age of consent. Most of them said, in in your 20s, in your 30s. One little boy put up his hand and he said, it would be nice to do it before you retire. (laughs) (laughs) That's how kids are approaching this topic. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make them want to go off and run run off and have sex or engage in sexual behaviour. They are approaching it with that childlike lens that we may have lost in adulthood. I use this example in the book as well. There are so many songs that have lyrics in them that are double entendres that just completely go over kids' heads. Thank goodness. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And, you know, Disney films, they put in things for the adults that the kids aren't going to get until they're older. It's the same it's the same thing. We can talk about these things in a way that is not going to corrupt innocence or anything like that, but is going to answer that curiosity. And if you don't know the answer to something that your kid's asking, you can always say, thank you so much for asking me that. That's a really good question. I don't know the answer. I'm going to going to go and find out and come back and talk to you about it because what's really important is that young people know that you're a safe space to talk about these things too, that there's not going to be shame and judgment and that you are going to do your best to answer the question for them. That's really the most important starting point, I'd say. Before I let you go, Katrina, are you optimistic about the future of sex ed in this country? I am at the moment. We're having such a great conversation in the community about it and more and more parents are coming forward and saying we really want our kids to have better education. There's been recent studies that show most parents in Australia want better sex ed for their kids. Teachers are saying we want to be able to deliver this in a way that is effective um, and we want to have greater confidence in delivering this in schools. We recognise how important it is. And most importantly, and the thing that gives me the most hope, is young people are being listened to more. Young people have been crying out for better sex ed for generations and we are finally starting to listen to them. And I hope that those of us with the power to answer this call that young people are making for better sex ed to be better equipped for their futures, I am hopeful that we will answer that call. I definitely think that parents can have such an important role in giving them the confidence to ask those questions of the wider world, you know, like if we meet their questions without, as you said, shame or judgment and just acceptance, then they're already going to be one step further ahead than we were. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's a gift that we can give our young people. 
Katrina, thank you so much for all your work and good luck because I'm sure you're going to keep on pushing with this topic. Thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. That's criminal lawyer Katrina Marson, and you'll find links to her book, Legitimate Expectations, in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review or favourite. That way you'll get all the new episodes, plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedplaylove at listener.com. Bye for now.